So we are in Galatians chapter 6. We will finish the letter tonight. This marvelous letter Paul wrote to all the churches in Galatia. The letter often described with the the single word grace and freedom in Christ Jesus. But while on the one hand he is giving us the positives of grace, on the other hand he is fighting against those who would steal it. I am thankful that Paul wrote this letter and fought this battle when he did because the church might be a very different thing today if not for the letter to the churches at Galatia. So we talked about recently of those agitators, those legalists, if they had not been silenced when they were, then it's very likely that things like circumcision and Torah law would have continued to dominate Christianity and it never would have been anything more than just a sect or an extension. And grace very well could have been lost, at least to our understanding. So I am so thankful that we have this letter. And tonight as Paul concludes the letter, we spent the last couple of teachings talking really about the fruit of the Spirit. Fresh fruit, good fruit that the the Spirit cultivates, but that we get to harvest. And in this, he he makes that contrast back in chapter 5 between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. But he lists them out, and something I want you to notice here, back in chapter 5, he makes this statement at the beginning of verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Paul almost doesn't have to give a list. We know what the flesh does. It's obvious. The fruit of the Spirit is equally obvious. You see the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life, and you can know this person is very likely hoi pneumatikoi, a spiritual one. To truly be the spiritual ones, you have been made spiritual by the Spirit of Jesus. You have been born again. And so the fruit of the Spirit versus the deeds of the flesh, but there's, there's a much more subtle issue that's going on throughout this, and Paul really addresses it here tonight. And the subtle issue isn't between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. It's between the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit, well, a fruit that probably shouldn't be touched. Some fruit shouldn't be touched. I ran across a list. I'm not going to go down the whole thing, but top ten most poisonous fruits. And it was interesting to me. And I wrote them all down, and I don't don't want to waste time on it tonight, but I'll tell you what number one was. Ready for this? Apples. Apples made number one on the top ten most poisonous fruits list from smashinglist.com. Apples. Now, why would that be number one? The seeds contain cyanide. They say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's all well and good. A few apple seeds a day and the doctor's going to be knocking you're going to be going for a visit because they contain cyanide and seeds from one apple they say probably won't kill but an ongoing uh, diet of apple seeds has caused some people to die. Apples can look good, they can smell good, they can taste good and yet inside the seeds are very, very dangerous. Don't eat them. So it is with false teaching. See, false teaching can look good. 
And it can smell good. And it can even be sweet to the taste. But there's something in there. There's some cyanide in there that'll kill you. It's interesting, just walking in here, Deb and I were talking about this. False teachers, how do you know? Some teachers out there claiming Christ and teaching Christian principles and others who are teaching the Word of God. And how do you know what, what's true and what's not? And how do you know those who are truly wolves in sheep's clothing? Well, Jesus made that really clear for us. You will know them by their fruit. You're going to know by what comes of their teaching. See, the flip side of grace and freedom and the good fruit of the Spirit is legalism and the bad fruit of the flesh. And the reason why Paul had to write this letter, thankfully he wrote it, but the reason he had to write it in the first place is bad fruit was cropping up in Galatia. Seeds have been planted that now we're yielding something negative. Paul sees it. How do you know this? Well, look at verse 15 of chapter 5. He says, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Okay, so there's some arguing going on. There's some fighting. There's some biting and negativity happening there in the Galatian churches. And Paul says, be careful. You're going to eat each other up. Look over in verse 26 of chapter 5. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. These are things that were going on. Why? Because false doctrine, bad teaching, yields bad fruit. And where the teaching is bad, the fruit will be equally bad. Understand, false doctrine is never innocuous. False teaching. It's never harmless. Oh, well, I know he said that, but he says so many things that are good. I understand she made that comment, but she makes so many right comments. And it's the dog poop and the brownie. Which I've shared with you before, just a little. I didn't put a lot of dog. I've shared this with my kids. They hate when I bring this up, and I do often. Well, that movie wasn't very bad, Dad. No, I know, just a little dog poop in the brownie. Would you eat it? And yet we will consume bad teaching that is laced with good and smells good, tastes good, seems to be sweet, but there are some seeds in there. I want you to hear this just real quickly. Uh, Jesus made this comment in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. By the way, note that. He says that in the plural. You'll know them by their fruits, their various fruits. Why does he say that in plural, but then Paul talks about the fruit, collective singular, of the Spirit? Because the fruit of the Spirit is all His fruit. The fruits of false teachers are all kinds of fruits. The false teachers themselves are a bunch of fruits. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? That it can come from all different ways and all different so-called interpretations. But the fruit of the Spirit has one source. The Spirit of the living God. That's the fruit I want in my life. And Jesus is so serious about this. He says, these trees, these false teachers, they're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Because false teachers will seed bad fruit. 
coming into the last section of the letter, Paul now is describing, as we've seen, the fruit of the Spirit, showing how it's best enjoyed in, in restorative love and gentleness by you who are spiritual. He talks about the, the joyful harvest of the vineyard. It's truly the joyful load that we get to bear. You know, he says this in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ being love. And we looked at the first five verses. We want to pick it up right in verse 6 and you will begin to see the context that he is talking about teaching. He says in verse 6 of Galatians 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I like that. And Les, you can go ahead and pass around my calendar so we can get those dinner dates going. You know, anyone with... Mark Harris actually calls this the Galatians 6-6 principle. He sprung that on me years ago. We went out to dinner one time, uh, and he grabbed the check and started paying. And I said, what are you paying for? And he said, Galatians 6.6. 6. You know, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. And I said, that's what I'm going to memorize <laughs> and share often. Now note this, it's, 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 it, Paul is not trying to get a dinner invitation here. But he said back in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 10, the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher in hope of sharing. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And he's defending there a pastor's right to receive income from the teaching of the Word. But that aside, the, the sharing together, the one who's taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches that him. And I get to share... Not just the teaching of the Word. I get to share what happens. You have no idea sometimes what you're sharing with me. It is a blessing to me. People say, oh Rick, thank you for teaching the Word. And I say, no, thank you for letting me. I'm the one that gets the benefit here. You share so much with me. I share with you and we share in the teaching. But note this, it is of the Word. God's Word. It's not about just sharing with anything that you're taught. It's about the one who shares the word, sound, biblical teaching. What Paul is doing here, again, he's not vying for a dinner invitation. He is teaching sound, biblical doctrine. Because good seed yields good fruit. And Paul has been fighting for this throughout the entire letter, in fact, through much of his ministry. James, in James 3.18, said the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So whereas bad seed yields bad fruit, good seed yields good fruit. That makes sense. The seed of the word is good seed. Which is why you're all here tonight. And in verse 7, continuing in the same vein, the same context, and it's important because oftentimes verses 7 and 8 are taken out of context. The context is in the teaching of the Word. And he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What does he mean by sowing? Teaching. He's talking specifically here about teaching. Now, we can make a broader application, and oftentimes we do. If you sow to the flesh, that is, if you focus on fleshly things, then you're going to reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, that is, you focus on spiritual things, you will reap life. And that's true. But again, hone in here. He's talking about the teaching of the Word of God. Sound biblical teaching versus false teaching. And throughout all the Scriptures, 
Sowing is often compared to teaching. The two are brought together. Reaping is compared to receiving that which has been sown into our lives, which is the Word of God. After teaching the parable of the sower and the soils, Jesus explained to His disciples, Mark 4.14, The sower sows the Word. The sower sows the Word. On the other hand, the idolaters, God says, Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain. And that, my friends, is spirituality without Christ. That is teaching good self-help with no Jesus. It's sowing the wind. And we're especially going to see that when we get into the letter Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, which was very much about spirituality, but needing Christ at the center. Missing that Jesus is the substance, Colossians chapter 2 tells us. Sowing, sowing good things, and then of course those who sow corruption. Imagine buying a big, thick, juicy porterhouse steak from Costco. One of those big, fat, good-looking steaks. And, and take it home, take it out of the bag, and lovingly go out into the yard and bury it a foot into the ground. And let it sit for a while. A week, two, three, maybe a couple of months. Make sure you water it. It gets lots of sunshine. And after a while, go dig that bad boy up and enjoy a meal of steak and potatoes with a side of wriggling, squirming maggots. If you sow corruption, you will reap corruption. If you're going to sow to the flesh, like sowing that steak, who would do that? Gang, I'm not making that suggestion, but I'll tell you something. This is an incontrovertible spiritual law. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. And the best way to sow to the Spirit that I know in this world is by the Word of God. Sow the Word. Feed on the Word. Digest the Word. Think about the Word. Be involved in the Word. This is how it works. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. And God said that to the northern nation of Israel right before it got overrun by Assyria. You are on the way out. You have been sowing to corruption and you will reap corruption bad teaching yields bad fruit now these agitators they were sowing to the flesh for their own selfish purposes and Paul will point that out as we'll see in just a moment but he tells us there's only one outcome of bad teaching and that is corruption and again Romans chapter 8 verse 6 he says the mindset on the flesh is death The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. I've had this conversation now a couple of times with one of my kids. Okay, it was Anna Marie. Where she made the comment, Dad, I don't have to go to church to love Jesus. I'm like, she said, I I heard you say that. I hate when they turn my words around on me. 
I heard you say that. That's not what saves us. And I said, you're right, Honor Marie. It will not save you going to church, but it's going to make your life a whole lot better. And I began to explain to her sowing to the Spirit. And I had her for about five minutes before her eyes glazed over. So that's good. (laughs) That we're here to be in the Word and to set our minds on the Spirit because He is life and peace. And I don't know about you, but I need it. I need it. Long about Thursday afternoon, I'm thinking, how long till Sunday? You know? I need to be in the Word. I need to be together with you. Bad teaching yields corruption. The good Word yields eternal life. So to the Spirit. And from the Spirit you will reap eternal life. By the way, you will not only reap eternal life for yourself. You may very well reap eternal life for someone else. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said this, 1 Timothy 1.16, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now so far, you might listen to this and go, okay, well that's great for you teaching pastors. No. No. We are all meant to be sowers of the Word. Everyone who follows Jesus is called upon to sow the Word. But how can you sow the Word if you don't know the Word? And so we get into the Word that we might sow it into people's lives. And not only do we then find ourselves saved in the process, but we start to see other people saved too. And it all comes from recognizing that I can give all kinds of words of encouragement and kindness and niceties to people out of my own mouth. But if they're not the Word of God, they're not going to go anywhere. But it's God's Word that seated yields eternal life. So James writes, In humility, receive the Word implanted which is able to save your souls. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters tonight, we need more of us to be teachers. We need more sowers. Don't be afraid to sow the Word. Well, what if I sow one verse and they want more and I don't have any more to give them? Sow the same verse again. Sow what you know. And just keep going. And be in the Word. Alright, so verse 9. He says, let us not lose heart in, I like this, doing good For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Still in the context of teaching, of sowing the good word, doing good. So then verse 10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And Paul's tapping into more fruit of the Spirit here. Now he he reaches into the second basket of fruit, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, and pulls out goodness. Do goodness is in essence the idea here. Now the word good is different than the word for goodness. The word for goodness is a noun. The word good here is the adjective form and it's kalos. And when he says do good, let's, let's do good. Let's be doing good. The word, it talks about or describes whole goodness, uh, genuineness. It can even be translated sound, vigorous, even powerful or heroic in nature. So to do good is truly a heroic act. It's good that describes both who you are and what you do. You do good because you are good. You are good because Jesus has made you good. And so it's a natural outflow of the nature of Jesus in you, in me. And note this, 
when he says do good, he says especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And I'm thankful for the. The household of the faith. It's not just any faith. It's not just the generic faith out there. Oh, you must be one of those faith people. People of faith. You know, people of faith. Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, people of faith. No. He says, especially to the people of the faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ. One household, one faith. The only one that will save. Galatians chapter 3, verse 25 says, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one faith that matters. One faith for one household. And by the way, that's not exclusivity either. It's family. One household of the faith. Jesus was sitting in the house and the crowd was all sitting around him and they were pressing in on him and they were listening to him. And someone from the back of the room calls out, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Because they thought he was nuts. And Jesus answered and said to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. I love the the repartee here. I mean, listen to what was just told him. Behold, your mother and brother are outside. And he says, Behold, my mother and my brothers. They're right here. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus wasn't dissing Mary and James and Jude and the others. He wasn't discounting them, but he was making a very clear point. Where the household of the faith is concerned, blood is thicker than water. And I'm talking about the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ runs thicker than the water of our physical family relationships. And some of you understand this and have experienced this. That truly, the blood of Christ in your life causes you to be closer to brothers and sisters in Christ in this family of faith. In the household of the faith, even than you are to your fleshly physical family. Sometimes that's the way it is. Sometimes it's not the way we want it to be. We long for our physical family. See, we were born of water. That's the physical. And blood is thicker than that water. If you so desire that your physical family be as close to you as your spiritual family, well then, sow the Word. And we're right back to it. Sow the Word you know. Keep bringing the Word of God. Keep offering them Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. They'll hate it at first. Keep bringing it. Keep sowing it. Some of that seed is bound to get into the cracks and germinate in a heart and make a difference. But we need to understand that Paul, along with the entire first century church, put a high premium on loving within the fellowship of believers. Within the household of the faith as opposed to the household of the flesh. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 says, Christ was faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And by the way, Sunday, I'm going to introduce you to a master and a slave who get to become blood brothers in Jesus. And their names are Philemon and Onesimus. 
We're going to check out Philemon on Sunday morning. Now, we come to this end of the letter and Paul picks up the pen himself from his unnamed secretary. We don't know who it is. If Galatians was written around the time of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, right in kind of that era, which I believe it was, then it may have been Tychicus. Um, It could have been Sosthenes. We don't know. But what we do know is now Paul takes hold of it himself, which is his way of verifying or signing his name. He does it often in his letters. 2 Thessalonians 3.17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my very own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. 1 Corinthians 16.21, he writes, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. And then Colossians 4.18, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So verse 11 of chapter 6, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Large letters. Now some think that this was just for highlight. And others believe, as I do, that this was probably because of eyesight. You know, he wasn't just trying to make a point. Some think so. Some say no. He was just writing in big block letters for emphasis here at the end of the chapter. I think as we've talked about that it's Paul's way of authenticating that it really is him. Look at how big the letters are. It is me. Remember what happened. My eyes got messed up by that debilitating illness when I was in Galatia with you. And he talks about that back in chapter 4. But either way, whether it's highlight or eyesight, Paul unleashes with his own hand now four bold rebukes. And I would suggest they're all caps. (laughs) Verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Four rebukes. And he just lambasts them with this. Now I'm going to take these four and describe them in terms of three because the first two are so closely tied together. So note this. Number one, Paul says this is all circumcision for appearance. Circumcision for appearance. In verse 12, they desire to make a good showing in the flesh. Well, that's the mask of religion. To look good, to look the part. And unfortunately, often that mask, while it looks nice on the outside, is truly ugly. Because people keep putting on the mask of religion and thinking by wearing it, they can fool God. Or at least fool each other. But couple that, they desire to make a good showing in the flesh, with what he says at the beginning of verse 13, they do not even keep the law themselves. It's all show. Behind the scenes, it's not true. It's exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You're whitewashed tombs. Well painted on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. And religion is that way. It's, it's phony. It's not real. It's what Hosea said. Chapter 10, verse 13, again, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, and the problem with religion is that keeping up appearances is always a lie. It's always a lie. Paul calls him out on it. Second thing, not only is it circumcision for appearance, it's circumcision for avoidance. He says in verse 12, so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. What's that about? In Paul's time, Judaism, while 
pressured by Rome was sanctioned by Rome. That is, it was one of the religions throughout the Roman Empire that was an acceptable religion. You were allowed to practice your Jewish faith, just don't have uprisings. They allowed the temple. In fact, you know in AD 70 when Titus's soldiers destroyed the temple, Titus didn't command that. In fact, what he had told his soldiers was, do not destroy the temple, you leave that whole. That's a whole different story. But they respected that Judaism was a faith. Now Christianity was something new. That was not on the books. So what we think Paul is talking about here is that if you keep Christianity as a sect of Judaism, then you're okay, you're not going to be persecuted for it. You say, oh no, this is like Judaism you know, 1B. It's just an extension. It's one of the many different arms of Judaism. And so the legalizers coming out of Jerusalem are protecting their own backs by saying, no, no, we circumcise, we do all the Jewish things, we just have Jesus too. And that makes it a little easier. Circumcise, and at least you are legally protected from persecution. Listen, religion always avoids the cross. Religion avoids the cross. Or paints the cross differently. Makes it more ornamental. Rather than what it's really about. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In our culture, the problem with the cross is that it declares the sin of man. Which is why a lot of even Christian churches avoid talking about it. Because to talk about the cross, you've got to talk about sin. That is an ugly, brutal example of exactly what sin is. The cross, you could say, is sin unmasked. Jesus bearing the sin of humanity on the cross in all the blood and brutality and ugliness, that's sin, man. So let's not talk about the cross. Let's talk about seven keys to happiness, including getting a dog. You know, let, let's, let's do lighter fare, different subjects. Valentine's Day is coming up, so let's talk about loving everybody. But don't talk about the cross. The Judaizers are avoiding the cross in favor of circumcision to protect themselves. And Paul makes it clear in the letter, it is either circumcision or the cross. You can't have it both ways. You cannot do religion and relationship. You can't do this ceremony and the sacrifice. It's got to be one or the other. But the cross may get you nailed to your own. So that's the possible fallout. And circumcision just played it safe. So finally, number three. Circumcision for appearance, circumcision for avoidance, and number three, circumcision for advancement. Literally to advance their own bragging rights. They, Paul says in, in verse 13, the latter part of the verse, they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. What's that about? Well, they're doing this, they're circumcising to get notches in their Bibles. You know, to keep track of this. So they can go back to Jerusalem and, and brag and boast. Yeah, we, we got all kinds of Gentiles proselytized you know, to our Jewish traditions and, and, and Jewish ways now. We got numbers. We, we keep account. Gang, religion is often a numbers game. That's one way you can know if a church is starting to get a little religious. When head counts become the bottom line. 
we had a baptism over here um, this last week, right? <laughs> She's in the back, head down, so I'm not going to say who. Anyway, but at the baptism, someone asked a question. He said, well, how many baptisms have you done in here? And, and uh, we, uh, Eva gave a guess. I don't know how many. And, and the person said, well, you really ought to like, put that number up on the wall. And I remembered, uh, as a kid growing up, that's what we did. It was embarrassing. You know, it would be the end of the year, and they'd be like, baptisms of the year, three. I just don't think I would be, you know, advertising that. Or on the other hand, large numbers. Look at how many people we've gotten into the water. That's not the point. Religion is a numbers game. Counting. Numbers tend to glorify man. Not God. And God has never been big on counting heads. You Bible students, what was the greatest sin of King David? Right. I was wondering if anyone would say Bathsheba. It was a bad one, but the largest impact sin of David was taking the census. Interesting. First Chronicles chapter 21 tells the story. David is moved. In fact, the Bible says Satan moved David to do a head count. And Joab, who wasn't the most spiritual apple in the barrel, he came along and said, no, but far be it from you. King David to to do such a thing. So obviously it was not a good idea. But David wanted to know, how big is my army? How many people have we baptized? How big is your church? Count heads. Let's make sure we know the exact numbers. And and David did it. 70,000 soldiers of Israel fell to a plague because of it. All because David wanted to do a head count? Why? He wanted the glory. Look at the size of the IDF under my leadership. Big. My friends, if we treat people as notches to be counted, God will remove people from this fellowship. That's what He does. You start counting up for your own glory, He will just start removing numbers and taking them out. By the way, one interesting thing with that story in 1 Chronicles 21, you can go read it and study it. What happened when David stopped Counting, recognized his error, repented of it. It's marvelous. God said, all right, here's what I want you to do to check the plague, David. I want you to go up on the threshing floor of Aruna, and I want you to offer sacrifices there. So, so David went up to Aruna, and he said, hey... I want to buy this land to offer sacrifices. And Runa said, no, no, I'll give it to you, and I'll give you the wood, and I'll give you the ox, I'll give you everything you need for it. And David said, no, no, far be it from me that my offering to the Lord should cost me nothing. And he bought the land, and your Bible is the deed of trust for the temple mount. Because he repented and stopped counting. And when David stopped counting, God built the temple. And marvelous things would come of that later. Well, these guys that Paul's dealing with, they're just racking up law points to show their buddies in Jerusalem its appearance, its avoidance, its advancement. But for all of Paul's journeys, listen to the contrast. The only boast of Paul was in the one scandal these men were trying to avoid. Verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
The cross. Paul always brings it back to the cross. He never gets too far out from it. And by the way, if you would be among those who say, as theologians, we really need to expand our spirituality, move on to other subjects other than the cross, well, I don't know of any greater theologian than the Apostle Paul. And he always brought it right back to the cross, the central focus of our faith. Now think about this with me for a moment. They set up three crosses there on Golgotha. Three crosses at the crucifixion of the Christ. Christ Jesus in the middle, flanked by two criminals. And just listen while I read this to you. In Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they had come to the place called the Skull, they crucified Him there and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up His garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at Him, saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself, if this is the Christ of God, His chosen one. The soldiers also mocked Him, coming up to Him, offering Him sour wine, saying, If you're the King of kings, save yourself! And there was also an inscription above Him saying, This is the King of the Jews. If that wasn't bad enough, verse 39 says, One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at Him as well, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us! But the other answered, and rebuking Him said, Wait a minute. You need to understand this, know this, based on the other Gospels. Both criminals were hurling abuse at Jesus at first. But one criminal changed his mind. And then said to the other criminal, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly for receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. The whole scene is so absolutely stunning. To see Jesus there, All the people hurling abuse and insults. The the two criminals on either side both doing the same thing. And then the one criminal begins to realize how Jesus is taking it. Begins to hear what Jesus is saying. Hears Him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And His heart is broken. And on the cross, He is convicted. And He looks over to Jesus and says, This isn't right. This isn't right. He says to the other criminal, Stop. Don't you realize what's going on here? And then in essence, he begs forgiveness of Jesus. Remember me. And Jesus, to one of the criminals who was abusing him while on the cross, said, I got you. And today you'll be with me in paradise. It's just, I I don't know any other story that even comes close. Three crosses. Three crosses. That's interesting to me because there are three crosses in Galatians 6.14. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the first cross, the central cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the crux of grace. It is also the oxymoron of Christianity. I mean, the Romans would not have understood this at all. What are you talking about? A a grand and glorious Messiah Savior who dies? 
What is this? He comes to save the world and He does so by dying at our hands? But Paul is entirely consistent. He brings it back again to the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, that's the first cross. The second cross Paul mentions here, through which the world has been crucified to me. The world crucified to me. Man, the world crucified is like the first criminal. The one sitting there, hanging there, hurling insults at Jesus, even as he himself is dying in conviction for his own sins. And isn't that the world in which we live? I think we need to have hearts that break with compassion for a lost world that is so venomous against Christianity. Rather than be offended or upset when people come at us for our faith, our hearts ought to break as we see that they are on crosses dying while hurling insults at Jesus. They don't even know what they're doing. That's the second cross. The world crucified to me. Why would anyone want to go back to that angry, defensive, dying world in lieu of the cross of Jesus Christ? And so Paul says there is the cross of Jesus through which the world has been crucified to me. And then he says, third cross, and I crucified to the world. And that's the second criminal. Or at least like the second criminal, undeserving. At first, joining in with the insults, but then recognizing who Jesus is, coming to a place of repentance. And at the last, yes, His flesh was crucified. His flesh went down. His flesh died. But His Spirit was bound for paradise. I am the second criminal. That describes me. That describes you. We are the second criminal on the second cross deserving our crucifixion until we recognize who it is who died for us, was dying for us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus was dying for us. And in that recognition we come to repentance and we say, Jesus, remember us when you come into your kingdom. And He says to you and He says to me today, you will be with me in paradise. And He promises that He will bring us home. Galatians 5.24, Paul said, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So that our only boast anymore is not in the size of our church. That's numbering, right? Counting. Our only boast is not in our ability to perform some ministry. Our only boast is in the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Three crosses. One cross that saves. One cross that condemns. One cross, our cross, is a cross that we are willingly taking up in this world as we follow Jesus. Matthew 16.24, he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 15, for neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, don't get me wrong, it's not throwing out all vestige of church. It's not denying being involved in the faith community, the household of the faith. No, it's neither one, it's being a new creation. 
And there are those who would think, okay, you got to be circumcised. you got to have religion. And there are those who would say, my religion is walking in the woods on a Sunday morning. La, la, la. And Paul would say, eh, and eh, you're both wrong, thanks for playing. It's a new creation. And by the way, an answer to anyone who says, why should I have to go to church? Because you're a new creation. Don't you want to? Don't you want to be where Jesus is being praised? Don't you want to hear the songs of the household of the faith? Don't you want to be a part of, of, of that body of believers? And in that word of God, doesn't that draw us to Him? A new creation. And then he says in verse 16, and those who will walk by this rule, that is the rule of a new creation, new life in Christ Jesus, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. We talked about that when we first got into this letter in a prophecy update. We looked at Israel and talked about some things going on. But listen, what Paul is saying here is a new Israel for a new Jerusalem. The Israel of God, this phrase, as I told you before, not used anywhere in all rabbinical literature, not used anywhere in the Scriptures. This is the only place you will see the phrase, the Israel of God. A new Israel. It's not replacement. It's a grafting in. It's an Israel that involves, combines all who share the same faith of the stuff of the faith of Abraham. Guess what? That's you if you believe in Jesus. If you have trusted your life to Jesus Christ, that's the faith of Abraham. What is the faith of Abraham? It's believing without seeing. It's trusting God is going to do what God says He's going to do. And God did with Abraham, and He did through Jesus, and we have not seen, and yet we believe. Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That's the faith of Abraham. And if you have that same faith of Abraham, you are the Israel of God. Again, let me be very clear, because I don't want to mess this one up. It is not replacement theology. I am not saying that the church replaces Israel. I'm saying we have been grafted in to the Abrahamic faith. That we are part of it, along with all of Israel, past, present, and future, who believes in God, who has received Messiah. Past, present, and future. In the past, prior to the crucifixion, there were those believing Jews who trusted God and took Him at His word and believed what He said was going to happen. And they are the Israel of God and they are saved. And presently, there are Jewish people coming to faith in Mashiach, trusting in Jesus Christ, the only way to the Father, and they are part of the Israel of God and they are saved. And so, with the entire church, future, future, we know that a third of Israel, based on Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah chapter 13, will pass through the tribulation and will be saved. That is who I believe Paul is referring to in Romans 11 when he says all Israel will be saved. The Israel of God coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 11.17 says this, If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, it is the root who supports you. Who's the root? 
It's Jesus who is of Israel. Jesus the Jew is the root and the descendant of David, right? So while we come from and we are grafted into Israel, it is because of Jesus who comes through Israel and He is the root. Now, real quickly, let me give you a quick update. Speaking of Israel, maybe you've been watching in the news, President Trump invited Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to the White House today. I've been watching this very closely. Are you watching Israel? I encourage you, keep your eyes on Israel. Watch what is happening to Israel in this world. It tells you an awful lot about where we are in the last days. And so at the news conference, I watched it today, and, and uh, Trump spoke of a, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have a great peace deal. We're going to have a great peace deal. That's what he said. And then he turned and asked Bibi Netanyahu to hold off on the settlements for a bit. And slow down on all these settlements and all this building of... They call them settlements, and that's any building by Israel in contested, what they call contested territory. That would be the West Bank or East Jerusalem, Golan Heights. And he says, hold off on that. As for his campaign pledge to move the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, Donald Trump reaffirmed that he would love to And then he said it this way, he said, and we're looking at it very, very strongly. See, the plan was, I don't know if you knew this, but on inauguration night, seconds after midnight, as it was quoted, they were going to start the process of moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. What's the big deal? It's a huge deal. It would recognize the reunified Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Which, by the way, in my humble opinion, would be the most staunchly Zionist thing that we could do as a nation. It would be so like Isaiah. It would be America's way of saying, for Zion's sake, we will not keep silent. And we will not play the game of the rest of the world. And we recognize Israel and Jerusalem as God's city in God's country. Well, they're looking at it very, very closely. It's been a month or two. I'm hopeful. I know what people say. Well, it's going to cause a big explosion. Well, that's, of course, what the Palestinians are saying. And the oppositional Arabs to Israel even being there, oh, it will bring hellfire down. If, Which is funny because hellfire doesn't actually come down. No thing would come up. But anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> all hell will break loose. You know, I mean, all the, the rhetoric is out there. But they're looking at it. But this is what's more interesting to me. This is what's been going on in Israel recently, and maybe you haven't even heard about this. The Knesset, Israel's ruling body, just passed what is called the Regulation Law. Anybody hear about this? The Regulation Law retroactively normalizes and legalizes all Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria. That's a big deal, gang. Because for the first time, by law in Israel... The Knesset has stated these settlements out here are on Jewish land. So that's a real brave step that's been taken. Now, it's a fair law because it provides funds for Palestinians. If a Jewish settlement started up on a particular area of land, and a Palestinian can prove, because there have been a lot of claims, but if they can prove that this land actually belonged to their Arab forefathers... 
and they have documentation of that, then in response, what the Knesset will do is provide, is pay them basically, buy the land from them, or provide comparable, equitable land somewhere else. So to be fair, at the same time, it shields all of these Jewish settlements against legal challenges if the town was built in good faith, that is, they didn't know that it belonged somewhere else, or with the backing of the Israeli government. So this, this has just happened. The regulation law and the world is freaking out. Going nuts about this. Palestinian negotiator Saeed Arakat says it legalizes Israeli theft of Palestinian land. Great Britain slammed the law saying it diminishes Israel's standing around the world. And the European Union put an indefinite freeze on a planned summit with Israel for the end of this month. They will not meet with Israel because this law passed. Meanwhile, (laughs) secret meetings have been taking place. Israeli intelligence just released this news that the Palestinian Authority is pivoting to Iran and Hamas in Gaza is turning to ISIS. So we're talking about negotiations not just with the Palestinians but with Iranian-backed Palestinians and ISIS-backed Palestinians. These are the people. What did I say about bad teaching bears bad fruit and you will know them by their fruit? Keep an eye on Israel. God says, Joel 3 verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they divided up my land. So please, as Paul writes, continue to pray for peace and mercy to be upon the Israel of God. And by the way, I invite you all to come with us to Israel next year. March 12th will be our information meeting right after second service. We're going to start planning for and preparing for that trip back to the land of God. Verse 17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. Why, Paul? For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. I read that and I thought, boy, there's a lot of Christians that have brand marks of Jesus. Cute tattoos, a little cross on the ankle, you know, or maybe a little Hebrew writing here or there, or the crown of thorns or whatever. And, you know, if you, if you have that, I'm not saying, I mean, that's between you and your God. But um, Christians get these and they say, I just, I just I want to be branded, you know, I want to be marked for Jesus. And when Paul says, I bear the brand marks of Jesus on my body, literally the word brand marks there is marks of a slave. And these slavery marks came in the form for Paul of scars on his back and on his body. Perhaps bumps. You don't think about this, but maybe discolorations on his skull from having been stoned to near death, if not to death, more than once. Some say that the brand marks could even be the oozing, weakened eyes from the illness of his first missionary journey. And of course, Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, Paul had visible, tangible brand marks of Jesus on his body. The word brand marks is a familiar word to you in English as well as in Greek. It's the word stigma. I have on me the stigma of the cross. 
The stigma of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, Paul would say, and I to the world. Finally, verse 18. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. A couple final things. This is the first of four times that Paul ends his letter this way. Only four times. Here in Galatians 6.18 and then Philemon verse 25, uh, Philippians chapter 4 verse 23, and then at the end of 2 Timothy 4 verse 22, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I love that. He doesn't just say, grace and peace be with you. He he extends it, be with your spirit. Why? Because grace is freedom that gets deep down into the heart. Grace is life-changing. It's not just something out there. It's not just, as I've said, a theological construct or a concept for us to try and understand and break down and look at biblically. It is a life-changing power. Grace and peace with it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's freedom unlike any other. And Paul knows this firsthand. Paul knows what it's like to have freedom beyond circumstances and he's about to start writing letters from prison. He understands freedom. And the last thing he says is, Amen. Amen. Can I share what you told us earlier, Susie? About Amen? Good. Like she's going to say no in front of everybody. More than taking amen just as a, uh, I agree. And oftentimes when we, when we pray together and someone's praying, we'll say, amen, amen. You know, I, I agree, Lord, I agree. I'm with, I, I'm with this prayer. I, I agree. Rather, taking amen in its truest sense to be, let it be done. Let it be done to me, Lord. And how would it be if we prayed that way? We pray the prayer and we don't just say, let it be. We say, let it be done to me. Paul owns this stuff. May we own it as well. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, and for your truth. We thank you for the time we've had in this letter to move through it and to consider it, to listen, Lord, and to take it in. And I would pray, Father, that the seed of the Word of God be planted deep in our hearts tonight. That we would know grace with our spirits. That it would affect and and change our relationships, our behavior, Father, our attitudes toward each other. That it would affect the way we love. Father, that Your grace in us would change what we deem to be so important Oh Lord, there are things in my life that I think are of ultra importance until I start to look at them through the lens of Your grace. Father, may we uphold one another as more important than ourselves. May we bear the grace of Christ carrying our crosses as Jesus, You bore all of our sins on the cross. We pray Your grace would be spoken and lived and shared in this place and in our lives until Jesus comes again. In Jesus' name, Amen.